Welcome to another gospel message from St. Luke's Anglican Church, Clovelly. Hi friends, uh, please keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 1. We're going to have a look at that together as we keep working through this biography of Jesus. Uh, I'm going to pray. Why don't you close, uh, bow your heads and we'll pray to our God. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who has spoken uh, into this world, and particularly in Jesus, as Mark claims. Uh, please would you help us so to hear what he has to say and to respond as we should in a way that honours you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 1929, New York, the Women's Suffrage March, this grand and noble agenda for women to have the right to vote. But Edward Bernays had a different agenda at play that day. Hands up if you've heard of Edward Bernays. There we go. Um, so um, Bernays worked for the US government during World War I in, this is very Orwellian, but the Committee on Public Information. His job was to develop uh, support, kind of public support for the war, something that he later called psychological warfare. Here's a bit he wrote later in his life. He said, there was one basic lesson I learned in the CPI. What could be done for a nation at war could be done for organisations and people in a nation at peace. And then after the war, Bernays used his uncle's ideas, Sigmund Freud, you might have heard of him, and Bernays became basically, he's kind of, he coined the name himself, the father of public relations. That's Bernays. And so the Women's Suffrage March, New York, 1929, Bernays paid models to smoke cigarettes at the end of the march in front of the press. And uh, up to that time, few kind of women smoked cigarettes, but Big Tobacco managed to use that moment to brand cigarettes as torches of freedom. Now, if you kind of Google old advertising posters, that, I mean, they're very quaint now, but you, torches of freedom that Bernays managed to kind of get into the public mindset. So um, isn't it crazy, right? This, this grand agenda, women's right to vote, was co-opted really by capitalism and greed and money. Now, today's section of Mark is about God's grand agenda for the world and the ways that can be co-opted. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, um, Jesus uh, has announced that God's kingdom is at hand, right? Time is up for evil and war and sin and death. Time's up. And it's time for us to repent, to, to return to God, to trust in him, to give up ourselves for his kingdom and for his agenda, the problem is, um, we've all got our own agendas in life, don't we? Um, all those work politics that you have to encounter, uh, because people aren't just doing the job, they're trying to get ahead. And so there's all these work politics that go on. But that's true of all of us. Even our, even our best moments are marred by mixed motives and hidden agendas. And today's passage asks this question, is your life about Jesus' agenda for you, or your agenda for Jesus? Is your life about following Jesus because he's God's king, God in the flesh, discovering his agenda for you by reading the Bible and following him no matter the cost? Or does somehow we, we, even with Jesus, God's son, kind of smuggle in our own agendas? Maybe we say, um, look, Jesus, I'll follow you as long as you give me dot, dot, dot. Love, career, wealth, status, I don't know. Now, the, the, the tricky thing, isn't it, is it's so hard 
to let go of our own agendas because we're just worried that, you know, if, if we let go of some of those things that we're searching for and pursuing, um, like hope and security and acceptance, we just kind of worry that things might not be okay for us. And so the thing is to be able to give up our own agendas of what we think is best for us, we're going to need to know two things. We need to know that Jesus is committed to our best. And we need to know that he'll do it no matter the cost. And that's what Mark wants to show us in this chapter. Okay, that's exactly what he wants to show us. So we're just going to kind of work through and we'll notice a few of those things along the way. So uh, chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus has gone public with God's agenda. He's saying God's kingdom is at hand. It's, you know, on the doorstep. We humans need to return to God and trust him. Um, And then he calls his first disciples to join his mission. And then he kind of takes them on mission and he goes to the local synagogue uh, in a little town called Capernaum. It turns out it's actually one of the um, first century towns that we have the most archaeological evidence about, so you can ask about that later. So let's read Mark chapter 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? If you come to destroy us, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Now, normally every Sabbath, you know, people would come and they'd hear some rabbi open up some Old Testament scroll and give some message that they kind of felt like they'd heard before, but not this Sabbath, (laughs) not this one. Jesus is invited to read. Maybe he chose like the the scroll of Isaiah about God's grand agenda for the world and that, that one day God's going to establish the world that we all want, a world of love and justice and peace, and that one day God is going to kind of clean up the world and get rid of sin and evil and all that's unclean, and and it's here. Maybe Jesus said that. And the people are amazed at Jesus' teaching because he's not like any other rabbi. They were always quoting the other rabbis, but Jesus, one of his favorite sayings is, I tell you the truth. And he stands out, doesn't he? But Jesus' teaching provokes another reaction from a demonized listener. And it's interesting as we read um, the gospel biographies of Jesus, um, I don't know if you've noticed this, the demons are the ones with the best military intelligence on the threat Jesus poses to their agenda. Um, They know who he is. They, They address him in strikingly accurate terms like Holy One of God or Son of the Most High God in chapter 5. They know Jesus' agenda is to destroy the power that Satan, the grand spiritual enemy of God and humanity, They know Jesus has come to destroy Satan's power over people, that he holds over us, not mainly through like possession, but just mainly through deception and fear and all those other things. You know, did did God really say? Do you remember that from Genesis? Now, it's interesting, right? Um, Mentioning unclean spirits uh, and Satan and the spiritual realm, I realize that kind of grates against our Western materialism. Some of, like, I find reading this, I'm like, oh, this is kind of, I'm not used to this. Um, our Western materialism kind of tells us that, 
I mean, despite all our longings that there is something more and there is something beyond, it tells us that actually this life is all there is and there is nothing more and there is nothing beyond. Now, you realise though, don't you, Western secular materialism, this belief that this, what we can see, is, is all there is, plays straight into Satan's hands. Have you thought about that before? Um, and Western materialism is very powerful. Al-Qaeda... Do you remember Al-Qaeda? We don't hear about them anymore, right? Al-Qaeda disintegrated. They were toppled by, not by Western armies, but by Western secularism. Right Towards the end, when everything was kind of falling apart, these kind of commanders filming videos in caves, they, they had to go into the local towns to get their latest Western recruits to put down their phones and stop shopping. <laughs> That's what was going on for Al-Qaeda. And so the next group, ISIS, remember ISIS? Um, their recruitment videos, kind of, you know, coming up on YouTube for Western, you know, come and join the jihad, they were full of beautiful women and BMWs because they were appealing to Westerners. And Western culture is about, you know, finding heaven on earth. So if you're appealing to that, I mean, what? hey, you don't have to wait for the virgins in the afterlife on that scheme. It's just, just we're, we're offering it to you now because that's what our Western culture kind of trains us to think. You know, um, our virtual worlds and our kind of perfect homes and all the rest, like, we're just, that this is what it's all about. But you realize um, objecting to the spiritual realm is a very Western objection. Right? If we were sitting down reading Mark's biography in Africa today, no one would be saying, oh, look, I'm not sure about that whole spiritual realm thing. It's a very Western kind of response. Um, and you know what? Satan, the grand enemy of God and humanity, he, he's happy to do anything even pretend he doesn't exist, to keep his hold over us. Mark wants to show us that someone stronger has arrived in town, Jesus. And Jesus is so powerful, he only has to speak. I mean, Jesus' words and evil flees. Um, Jesus' words and people are healed. Jesus' words and people are forgiven. And the crowd in Capernaum synagogue that day, they acknowledge, we've never seen anything like this before. Actually, we've never seen anyone like this before. This is a new teaching. It's got authority. Except even though Jesus says to the unclean spirit, you know, don't tell anyone, the crowds ensure that this news of Jesus goes viral. And the news gets out. And because the news gets out, Jesus is under pressure for his agenda to be co-opted, right? By the problem of popularity. If you're following along, that's where we're up to. And uh, let's read Mark 1, verse 28. Mark 1, 28. And at once Jesus' fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, well, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues 
and casting out demons. Now, Simon Peter's mother-in-law is Jesus' first um, healing miracle, and he does it merely by touch. Uh, That's amazing, right? Um, Her healing is complete and immediate, and um, within a straight away, she's kind of up serving, you know, afternoon tea. Um, There's this beautiful line in Lord of the Rings that says, um, the hands of the king are healing hands, and by those hands shall the rightful king be known. That's kind of it, isn't it? Um, uh, That's what happens. The the sun soon sets, the Sabbath is over, the crowds are kind of, you know, there at the back door of this house in Capernaum, and they've come for one reason, haven't they? To see what the latest miracle worker in town can do for them. And Jesus does heal every sickness and cast out every spirit because by the healing hands, thus shall the rightful king be known. He's the one. What's also left forever, not just all the sicknesses, is any sense of Jesus' privacy. Do you notice that? From now on, Jesus has to um, fight for solitary moments with God and for any kind of solitary time with his disciples. Um, and it's worth noticing, Jesus is like crazy busy, right? You know, we say to ourselves, you know, how are you? The answer is almost always busy or maybe crazy busy. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is crazy busy. He's got a to-do list he's never going to get to the bottom of. But he still takes time to pray, doesn't he? In fact, he makes time to pray. It says, um, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he goes to a desolate place. You know, somewhere without Wi-Fi. Somewhere really, like, desolate, you know? And out there he prays. Um, Actually, that might be a good tip, you know, get away from your phone and away from the Wi-Fi when you're trying to pray. Just, like, walk into another room. Um, Now, it's interesting, you know, a disciple is a follower, Right? Um, And you're meant to imitate. And so um, we're meant to imitate Jesus. Uh, We're six weeks into the year, and I wonder how this is going for you. Are we imitating Jesus' priority of prayer, making time to pray? Um, Away from the phone and the to-do list and everything else, because somehow even Jesus, the Son of God, needs time with God, his Father. That's interesting, right? And friends, if perhaps it's on your heart to go deeper into prayer, that's something that's been on my heart for us to to kind of grow in as a church. I don't know exactly what the best um, answer is. Maybe um, you want to be on an email list um, to get some prayer points that you're committed to praying for during the week or maybe we'll start a once a month before church 15-minute prayer meeting or I don't know. But if that's on your heart, can you just make a little note on the yellow cards today that you want to go deeper in prayer and we'll come up with a few ways that we can do that. The thing is, this passage isn't really about whether you or I kind of have a quiet time before the sun comes up. This passage is about Jesus. Jesus, he goes to pray in the... Actually, the word for desolate place is the same as the word for wilderness back in Mark 1 um, when Jesus is tempted. That is, it's like a hint. Jesus sees that um, he's facing another temptation, not this kind of assault from Satan that happened of 40 days of starvation in the wilderness, But somehow, this problem of popularity is going to be a temptation for Jesus, a distraction. It seems like it's confirmed when Simon Peter pursues, the word is literally persecutes, right? Um, Jesus is off praying and they are just hunting Jesus down. Where are you? Everyone's looking for you. Jesus, don't you know you're a big deal now? You're like trending on Twitter. You're, You're like in the headlines. You've got an audience now, Jesus, and your audience needs you. What are you doing out here? 
And I wonder if Jesus saw it coming. Maybe he sensed that danger and he went out to pray. He'd seen the crowds. He, he knew about the problem of distraction, that God's agenda could be railed, derailed by that. And Jesus' response in verse 38, and we, we're going to spend a bit of time on this, but um, he raises an awkward question for us. And I'm going to give you a moment just to talk with a couple of people around you and just to think about this question. Why is it that healing and helping people, because surely that's good, right? Why could that be a distraction? You got the question? Why could, for Jesus, I think this is what he says, and we'll come back to it. Why is, why is healing and helping people a distraction? Okay, wrestle with my awkward question. I'll give you 60 seconds or something. Have a go. Clearly, Beck sums it up so well. Well done. Um, okay, here's, here's a, few, a few thoughts. Um, number one, healings get a crowd. That means Jesus has an audience to please now. Um, but crowds are fickle, aren't they? Um, there's a little quote on your handout, crowds lie. It's a fascinating kind of observation by someone. And late, by the end of Jesus' um, life, the end of Mark's biography, what are the crowds doing? They're yelling, crucify him. So... Um, you've got to be careful not to play to the crowds. So I think that's part of what Jesus, Jesus is concerned about. Um, there's a second thing. Um, the crowds leave feeling better, but not necessarily repenting. And remember, that's why Jesus said he's come. God's kingdom is at hand. We need to repent to return to God. Um, and we're meant to give ourselves to God's grand agenda for us. That's not necessarily happening because of um, the crowds going away healed. And then there's a third thing which I think we've touched on, is that healing sickness is good, but it's not final. It's good, and friends, it's worth noticing, actually, you read the Gospels, anyone who comes to Jesus for healing, Jesus heals them. Now, we'll see that in a second. Um, but it's not final. From the perspective of eternity, it's very short term. Um, and Jesus has come to actually heal the world forever. Um, with a healing that cannot be undone by death. Because as you read, you know, some of the people who were healed, I take it they still went on and they died, but Jesus has come to bring a healing that cannot be undone even by death. So Jesus has this agenda that's actually grander than ours for our greater good that lasts forever, that meets our deepest needs. Now the interesting thing is, I think a lot of pastors would have been tempted just to camp out at Capernaum. Let's just soak up the success, get a book deal. You know, this is amazing. So many people. But Jesus won't be distracted. Jesus won't let God's agenda be co-opted. And it's worth noticing, anytime Jesus says something like, this is why I came, and he does it here. Have a look at verse 38. There's a couple of other, the, other of these in Mark's gospel, but verse 38. And he said to them, well, they're looking for me? Great, let's go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. All right, the, Jesus is saying in this passage, the reason the Son of God left heaven and crossed eternity and was squeezed into a human being was to preach, to teach, to proclaim a message. And Jesus has come to announce God's kingdom and Jesus has come to establish God's kingdom. And Jesus knows that God's kingdom advances in the world as God's message is proclaimed and spoken and taught and believed. And so Jesus says, look, let's go to the next town and on to the next person because everyone needs to hear. And friends, what is true for Jesus' ministry is true for ours. 
we proclaim God's kingdom. And, you know, Mark 1 has already kind of given us the heart of Christianity, actually. The master is Jesus. We saw that first week. Um, Last week we saw the mission is about God's kingdom. And here the method is proclaiming, speaking the message of the gospel. And I think because of what we read, we should add praying. And, you know, um, churches are called by God to do more than just preach. But it is never to be less than preaching. Preaching changes lives and eternities. I don't just mean this, I mean the speaking of the message of Jesus in conversations everywhere. So here's the question. Is your grand agenda in life proclaiming and praying that God's kingdom would come? That it has come in Jesus. As you go to work tomorrow or study or uni, whatever it is, um, will you display the kingdom? Uh, doing good work, serving others, proclaiming God's kingdom in Jesus as you have opportunity because now you live for an agenda greater than yourself and your own agenda. You live for God's agenda in the world. That's what Jesus is calling us to. But there's one important last scene in this episode. We didn't read it before. I'm going to read it now. Um, After moving on from Capernaum, Jesus goes on like a little tour of the towns of Galilee. And let's just pick it up. uh, Chapter 1, verse 40. Chapter 1, verse 40. And a leper came to Jesus, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, And offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But the man went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And still, people were coming to him from every quarter. Now, Jesus just made clear he won't let his agenda be co-opted or distracted, even by something as good and wonderful as people being healed, Except Jesus is full of compassion, and he never turns anyone away who comes to him. Now, um, tomorrow morning when you kind of um, do that small talk at the start of the day, uni, work, wherever it is, um, you know, a colleague kind of (coughs) coughs and confesses that they've woken up feeling a bit sick. What goes through your head? Well, partly you're like, oh, I'm really sorry you're feeling sick, and you're showing compassion, and mentally you're like, how do I get out of the contamination zone? And find some hand sanitizer, because I don't want to get sick. Like leprosy, like a thousand times worse. Um, But Jesus' compassion takes Jesus into the contamination zone. Except the opposite happens to what normally happens. That is, Jesus isn't infected and the man is healed. But don't tell anyone. Jesus, I think, concerned about the agenda of the crowds and kind of co-opting the agenda of the kingdom. And probably when we keep reading, I think Jesus is concerned that if everyone starts saying, oh, he's, he's the Messiah the kind of fiery nationalists are going to be picking up their swords ready to fight, and Jesus doesn't want that. But the man can't help himself. He goes and tells everyone. And notice, it's Jesus who is the one who bears the cost of that. For Jesus to bring cleansing to this man, Jesus is the one who bears the cost. Pushed to the edges of society, cannot go anywhere in public. But actually, this is always the way with Jesus, isn't it? 
For Jesus to bring us cleansing, he is the one who bears the cost. For Jesus to bring us God's kingdom, Jesus is the one who bears the cost. For Jesus to bring eternal healing for the world that even death cannot take away, Jesus is the one who will bear the cost through his own death. Now, friends, so often we, we are caught up in our own agendas that we think will bring us joy and security and hope and acceptance and everything else. But if we have this choice, will we keep pursuing our own agendas and kind of push Jesus to the side of that? Or will we give ourselves over to Jesus and trust him to look after us? C.S. Lewis wrote, it's, it's a choice. He said, look for yourself and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. So here's the question. Will your life be about Jesus' agenda for you or your agenda for Jesus? Jesus has this greater agenda for your greater good that you and I could not imagine and could not secure God's kingdom forever. And he's won it by bearing the cost for us. Why don't we stop and pray? Thank you for listening. For more information about St. Luke's Anglican Church, please visit www.clovelly.org.au.